This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. On today's show, Enda will be looking at novelist Elizabeth Taylor. And our Toaster Challenge guest is Sarah Bannon, Head of Literature at the Arts Council and also a writer herself. And we'll be looking at the last collection by the late Lee Harwood. So, the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. So, Wendy, you want to talk today about a writer that you admire? Yeah, I would like to talk about a writer called Elizabeth Taylor, not the actress, but the English writer. Kind of an unfortunate name for a writer in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think actually she really suffered from this because people were always thinking, oh, it's Elizabeth Taylor, the actress. And I mean, you know, you've got the glamorous Elizabeth Taylor married to Richard Burton. And then you have what people perceived as this dowdy middle class English writer living in the suburbs of London. But really, she was far from that. Um, So who was she? Well, she was born in 1912, so she was very much a writer of the 20th century and she died in 1975, actually weirdly around the time that Elizabeth Taylor remarried Richard Burton. But as I said, she was very much a 20th century writer. Kingsley Amos regarded her as one of the best English novelists born in the century. Her first book was At Mrs. Lippincott's, which she wrote during the Second World War. So that kind of gives you the time span of when she was writing while her husband was in the Royal Air Force. And it was followed up by 11 novels and a children's book. So she she was really prolific. And well-known novels of hers include Angel, which is a really, really interesting read, and A Wreath of Roses. And her second last novel, Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, that was actually the first book that I read by her. You may have seen it around the house, Peter, but it's set in a retirement hotel where an older woman, Mrs. Palfrey, befriends a younger man. And even that idea of a retirement hotel, it's kind of strange, isn't it, Peter? I mean, would you like to live in a retirement hotel I would love it. Kind of interesting, wouldn't it? But that's the kind of, you see, she's great at capturing particular time and things that happened in it. So this idea, I wouldn't mind going to a retirement hotel either. But Mrs. Palfrey is in the retirement hotel and she spends her time befriending this uh, younger man and he leads her into her past and she leads him to his future. So it was a really good book. And as soon as I read that book, I was totally hooked. Uh, it was also turned into a movie with Joan Pl- uh, Plowright. So it, I, I think really, once you encounter Elizabeth Taylor, I think you're very lucky, really, because you're entering a fantastic world of writing. And yet, and yet it's, it's strange I mean, because at the same time, like she was she was certainly underrated, wasn't she? I mean, I mean, she's a writer. She's she's best known for for not being better known in a way, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't yeah, that, isn't that's that a good way of putting it. Actually, she's she is best known for not being better known, and maybe that kind of helped her in a way because then when you discover her, it's just such an amazing thing. So she grew. She, as I said, she wrote in the suburbs, and her husband was the owner of a local confectionery factory. Can you imagine that? And she had a very quiet routine, she said. Um, In interviews, she described working out the plots of her books while she did the ironing. Now, that can sound very boring and domestic, but what, what appears on the page is absolutely brilliant. She said, I've had a rather uneventful life, thank God. She said this to the London Times, but she said another more uh, eventful world intrudes from time to time in the form of fan letters to the other Elizabeth Taylor. I think this is quite funny as well. Men write to me and ask for a picture of me in my bikini. And my husband thinks I should send him one and shake them. But I haven't got a bikini. So <laughs> these are the kind of things that happen to her. Kind of reminds me of somebody like Maeve Brennan, in a way, the Irish writer. He's often kind of 
uh, missed out on in, in, in some ways. Only recently, you know, that p- people have been paying her more attention. Yeah, that's true. Like Mae Frennan, I think, missed out upon. And yet all of life is present in her books. Elizabeth Jane Harridge, another underrated writer, wrote, I reread Elizabeth Taylor's novel because she increases my sense of reality. Indeed, there's, I think, no better writer at revealing reality than Elizabeth Taylor. It shines through in every line of hers. Her stories are lives of quiet desperation and they're kind of against the background of polite afternoon tea and English life. But you find extraordinary detail that illuminates the kind of superficially order, ordinary life. And you really get into what that looks like. She knew very well the endless dreary tasks of post-war domestic life and motherhood. And she wasn't afraid really to describe the hard work and the courage of her female characters. And many of her characters suffer because they can't really bear to confess their loneliness, their anger, their terror at night, as she says. And you, you wanted to say something about the way she wrote? Yeah, well, you see, I was so interested. I suppose if you write yourself, I was really interested in her process of writing. And I found this quote from her where she says, I write in scenes rather than in narrative, which I find boring. I am pleased if the look of a page is interesting, broken by paragraphs or dialogue, not just one dense slab of print. I thought that was interesting as well because she's, she's very interested in painting. She was very interesting to, as a person in going to art galleries and buying paintings. I thought it was quite painterly the way she described the text on the page. And um, she also spoke about the driving force of characterization in her work. She wrote to her American publisher in 1948 and she said, people are my only adventures and I hope never to have any others. And though I don't use their characters in my books, their company constantly replenishes me and inspires me to allow to be allowed to be ordinary and live among ordinary people though no one is really that, is the only way that I can write. And I expect that this limits my range, but I have no gift for anything else. So she's she's very, very honest, really, about what she says about writing. So very, obviously, like an accomplished novelist, but, but at the same time, it's not her novels that you're going to talk about today in particular, isn't it? It's, it but her stories. Yeah, I really do want to talk about her stories. They started out appearing, like you spoke about Maeve Brennan earlier, they started appearing from the 1940s up to the 60s and they were in publications like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, The New Yorker at a time when, as you said, Maeve Brennan was publishing, Mary Lavin, Frank O'Connor and a lot of them published under the famous editorship of William Maxwell. And this volume that I'm holding here at the breakfast table was published in 2012 because it was to celebrate 100 years since her birth in 1912. And it gathers all her stories together. And and they're really fantastic stories. What makes them stand out for you? Well, what makes them stand out for me is there is, I think, a really sophisticated precision to her writing. There is an emotional accuracy. As, as I said earlier, she knows about people and how they live together, kind of behind closed curtains, the loneliness, the unspoken pain. She's good on the kind of private crisis of marriage. We know nothing about that, Peter, sure we don't. <laughs> Parenthood and uh, growing older. And almost invariably, her books end on a note of irresolution. I like that. They fall into a silence 
And Paul ba- Bailey, he did a really fantastic introduction to many of her Virago books and he described her particular talent with stories. He said the short story form is one that attracts the swift glance rather than the long, cold stare. And Elizabeth Taylor is one of the great glancers. I think that's really, really great way of describing her. Yeah, work. I mean, you mentioned William Maxwell uh, in The New Yorker. I mean, he was he was kind of a famous editor who nurtured a lot of writers. So she, so she, was, she was lucky in the, in the editors that she encountered. Yeah, I think really that you realise that editors are very important the more you write. And Elizabeth Taylor's first published work was a short story in Tribune for Thine is the Power, it was called. And it appeared in 1944 and it was accepted by no less than George Orwell himself. He was the new literary editor. She'd been rejected before by Reginald Moore at Modern Reading the previous year, but Orwell took it on. And thank God he did, really, because he set her off on the path. And then another story, Better Not, was published in in the same year, 1944. And that was edited by John Middleton Murray. But of course, there was Robert Maxwell in The New Yorker. He guided her well and he published many of her short stories. And it's really interesting, actually, in the collected stories, which which I'm holding up for you there, Peter, because there's a great introduction from her daughter, Joanna Kingham. And she describes how Catherine White and William Maxwell, the literary editors of The New Yorker, became great friends of her mother and how often at Christmas time, The New Yorker would send over a large ham and it was a real treat, which was really scarce in England. You see, Elizabeth Taylor, really, there isn't much known about her life. So I loved to hear those little details. And she also dedicated her collection of stories, The Blush, to William Maxwell. And just as a funny aside as well, uh, the daughter tells of her mother listening to the morning story on the BBC radio and she was making the beds at the same time. And apparently she loved to listen to these stories when suddenly she hears a story that she she recognises and she thinks that sounds familiar. And then she realises that it is her own story and that there'd been this man who had been taking stories from The New Yorker, pretending they were his and then sending them into the BBC. So those little details can be quite comical. And actually, as you read the stories, you realise Elizabeth Taylor has a lot of wit and humour to her stories too. Are they quite auto- autobiographical? Um, well, yeah, you see, I suppose she, she, she gets into the tiny intimacies of domestic life and the daughter does reveal that a lot of things that happened in their life ended up in the stories. Her collection, The Dedicated Man, was dedicated to the English writer Robert Little. She did a long-standing friendship with him. And it began with a very long correspondence. And Robert Little lived in Athens. And so it was a long time until they met. But he himself later wrote a book about his friendship with Ivy Compton Burnett and Elizabeth Taylor in his memoir, Elizabeth and Ivy, which came out in 1986. And he points to this story called The Letter Writers, which is in the collected stories. And it's about two writers who correspond to each other for over a decade. And they 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 they. Uh, never meet until this particular point when they decide that they will. And that's the beginning part of that short story. Yeah, you think, I mean, you really like the story. I mean, what, what, what do you really like about it? Yeah, it is true that this story, The Letter Writers by Elizabeth Taylor, is one that really stays with me in the way that, say, a story like The Demon Lover by Elizabeth Bowen or A Lady with a Lady and a Lapdog by Chekhov has stayed with me or Tobias Wolf's Bullet in the Head. All these brilliant stories. Hers really stands out as well. I think she knew very well about the terrible emotion of embarrassment, as she says. And this story is about the terrible shyness which is suffered by the 
character, Emily, because she's waiting for the arrival of this famous writer, Edmund, who she's never met. But a bit like in the real life situation um, with Taylor writing to Little, they, they've been writing back and forth all the time. And she it's quite intense. It, she says she stood before an alarming crisis, one that she'd hoped to avoid for as long as ever she lived. The crisis of meeting for the first time the person whom she knew best in the world. And he lives in Rome and she's been she went there once, but she was too shy to call on him. But now he's coming and it's there's a huge sense of tension in this story. And if you like, Peter, I'll read a piece. Would you like that? Yeah, I would, yeah. I just have to rummage here through the pages and find it. But it's 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 a good piece. So let's see. I love the feeling that she she's there waiting and waiting and waiting for him. Yeah. So the tension, she says, he knows too much about me. So where can we begin? She wondered. She confided such intimacies in him. At that distance, he was as safe as the confessional with the added freedom from hearing any words said aloud. She'd written to his mind only. He seemed to have no face and certainly no voice. Although photographs had once passed between them, they'd seemed meaningless. She had been so safe with him, they could not have wounded one another, but now they might. In ten years, there had been no inadvertent hurts of rivalry, jealousy or neglect. It had not occurred to either to wonder if the other would somehow cease to write. The letters would come as surely as the sun. But will they now, Emily was wondering. She turned to the familiar bend of the road and the sea lay glittering below, its wrinkled surface looking solid and without movement like a great sheet of metal. Now and then a light breeze came off the water and rasped together the dried grasses on the banks. When it dropped, the late morning silence held, drugging the brain and slowing the limbs. It's a procession of disasters. Oh, yeah, it is a procession of disasters because she gets nervous. She drinks too much, a little bit too much sherry. There's great details like she's going to the well to pull out the bottle of wine that's been cooling there. And the rope from the well makes her dress all green and dirty. And then the cat tries to eat the lobster that she got for the lunch. And it goes on and on. And then he arrives. And that makes it sound comical. But really, you're feeling just the tension, tension, tension of what's coming. So it's a brilliant story. And I I think if anyone wants to start off by reading her in this collection, I would recommend that as a great one to start with. Uh, what, What would you say is her legacy as a writer? I think it's kind of conflicting. Like Hilary Mantel said that she's deft, accomplished and somewhat underrated. And Rosamond Lehman describes her as sophisticated, sensitive and brilliantly amusing. I mean, these are all fantastic comments. But then you have somebody like Joyce Carol Oates in The Washington Post who says there is a distressing similarity between Taylor's many stories, an assumption which somehow destroys a reader's enjoyment of her art. They are imagined as interior creations, she says of her characters, existing within the confines of their particular stories. And they are made to be and even to feel inferior. Now, that's that's really awful. That's pretty that's that's a real dismissal. Yeah. And then more recently, Sarah Waters said she remains one of the great underread and underappreciated British writers of the 20th century. So really, I suppose you're talking about her legacy. I just think it's going to be a really fine one if, if readers can find her. And I highly recommend this book, The Complete Short Stories of Elizabeth Taylor. And also, I think I suppose we're relying on people like the Virago Press and the New York Review of Books because these are going to keep her stories out there. 
you are probably right in a sense when you're saying she was underrated. She's been too long, I think, a writer's writer and it would be great if she became a reader's writer. Thanks, Enda. So that was Enda talking about Elizabeth Taylor, Complete Short Stories, published by Virago Modern Classics and details, as always, on our site, booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. Thanks, Peter. And now it's time for the Toaster Challenge, where we invite a guest in to talk about a book that they really love, that they've been moved by. And today I'd like to welcome Sarah Bannon-Keegan, author and head of literature in the Arts Council. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here, Sarah. Well, just to say a few things about Sarah. Sarah was born in Watertown, New York. She went to Georgetown University and following graduation from there, Sarah moved to Ireland in 2000. She's worked in various arts organisations, including the Irish Film Institute and Lilliput Press, and since, since 2007, she's been head of literature with the Arts Council. And in 2010, 2011, she completed the Faber Academy's novel writing course in Dublin. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because Sarah's first novel, Weightless, which was a tale of teenage angst in Alabama, was published in 2015 by Bloomsbury in the UK and St. Martin's Press in the US, as well as being translated into several languages. Here in Ireland, the Irish Times compared it to the Pulitzer Prize winner Geoffrey Eugenides' book, The Virgin Suicide. So praise indeed for your book, Sarah. Sarah lives in Dublin with her husband and two children. And on the subject of children, I think it should be mentioned that children's creative welfare has always been important to Sarah. At the Arts Council, she developed the first policy for children's literature and initiated Ireland's first children's laureate, which is going to tie into the toaster challenge in a little bit. Personally, I have to say, I know Sarah as a really avid and enthusiastic reader, and that will also be of great help to the Toaster Challenge. So, Sarah, you are extremely welcome to Books for Breakfast. Thank you so much. I've been loving the podcast, so thanks for having me on. Oh, that's great. Um, So, Sarah, from Watertown, New York to Ireland, what made you come here and also make you stay for 20 years? Oh, it's a kind of a, um, it's a pretty cliched story, I suppose. Um, I, I did, I wanted to do a year abroad for my third year in college and uh, I didn't have much of a faculty for languages. I needed to go someplace English speaking. I had a frenemy who decided to go to Scotland and I thought, I'm not going there. I'll go to Ireland instead. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know right. that it was, I don't know that it was motivated for the, for the most um uh, noble of reasons but at the same time I came and I think within one or two weeks of, of being in Dublin I absolutely fell in love with it so I started at Trinity for the year and uh, I made some great friends and I met my now husband about a month in and I just yeah I fell in love with the city the size of it um, I fell in love with the writing and the contemporary literary scene I worked really hard so I could stay on and I got an internship at Lilliput and kind of and then I had to go back and finish my degree in the States but came back one month after graduating college to come and live here and lived for a while in North Great Georgia Street with my husband and um, yeah the rest is kind of history but yeah no I um it all sounds it's, it sounds very adventurous yeah well not really because in a way I think we I moved around a lot as a kid <laughs> growing up and so I have no, I've worked out that I've lived in Ireland longer than I've lived anywhere in my whole life which I think is why I have such a strange accent and but yeah no once once I came to Dublin I thought no this is the this is the place for me oh that's brilliant so there was a real sense of homecoming when you came here yeah yeah 
Yeah, well, that's great. But you wrote your novel Weightless here in Dublin. So for all your travels, yeah. it's it's uh, it's it, you wrote it in Dublin, but it's not set in Ireland. It's set in Adamsville, Alabama, and it centers around the arrival of a new girl to Adamsville High, 15 year old Carolyn Lessing. She's really cool, isn't she, Sarah? She's a cool character with gorgeous looks. She's talented and everything. But actually, her story becomes less than perfect, less than cool. It actually becomes very tragic. So I was just wondering, could you tell the listeners a little bit about her story without giving away too much and also the real life tragedy that inspired you to write it? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose the um, the the novel began for me as a scene um, as a, um, and it was it was a scene that I wrote actually even when I was in college. So I think I'd been carrying it around with me for a long time. So I went to high school in a place not dissimilar from the the fictional place that I described. Obviously, I dramatized it and brought it into contemporary times. But I went to a a small high school in Alabama where the most popular girls in school were cheerleaders and we voted on them and the football players were very popular. And it was a very kind of rigid social hierarchy. And I suppose I was always really interested in how that played out because I came into that. We moved a lot, as I say, and I came into that as an outsider. And I was quite different from the character that I described. I was not, I was not very cool and I was not very beautiful, mm-hmm. but I was an observer and I was really, really interested in that. So, yeah, I wanted to write a story about what it's like to be kind of perceived as, as perfect and what it's, what it's like to be an outsider. And I suppose a lot of a lot of the reviews at the time talked about the book being about bullying. And I suppose I guess I was interested in that, but I was more kind of interested in, in the the ideas of of people who don't maybe necessarily take direct action and bully, but people who stand back and watch. So I suppose one of the things that is a bit different about the book is that it's told from the point of view of an anonymous group of girls. So it's told in the first person plural. And I think that was one of the first things that came to me about the book was yeah. it was kind of the passive, a passive observers who were watching bad things happen and, and didn't really have the courage to speak up because I think that's a lot of what can happen during that time, during that time of our lives. And, and I think I was probably more in that group than being a kind of a, a courageous yeah. hero. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's about a girl coming to a town, initially beloved, and then yeah. what it's like to maybe stand out and, and, and how a town deals with ch- change and anything that challenges the status quo. Yeah. I mean, you spoke about bullying there and that's a message that schools really want to get out to children to not stand back and be silent, but to speak up. So I think that's a really important message. You spoke about using um, the first person plural voice there, the we throughout the book, which is really unusual and uh, novelistic device. And I was just wondering, I, I know you said a little bit about it there, but did that help you to get into the mindset of, you know, the, the social pressures, the texting, the emailing, the blogging, all those things that are in the book? Did that help? help you a lot as a device as a writer yeah no it did and I think I mean I heard you guys on the podcast you talked a while back to um, Alice Lyons uh, about the book Una you know and so that book is really interesting because she she writes the whole book without using the letter O and on one level I think people think oh god that's such a constraint but actually sometimes a constraint can be very freeing for the writer and so once I really committed to writing something in that point of view I found it, yeah, I found it very easy to get into that mindset, a mindset that is not wholly your own, because I think that that time of early teenagehood is a time when, you know, your brain is at a very delicate phase of kind of becoming becoming an adult adult brain and making decisions in that in, in, in a different kind of way, but also 
you're so connected to kind of the hive mind and and so I, I guess I wanted to explore that but but like that too for for me as a writer it was it was great to have that constraint because I thought well the girls can only see this they can't know that and we can't get into this so there were kind of limits to what it could it could observe which I think you know can be frustrating for the for the reader but is also a kind of a different experience as well. Yeah. And as you said, there was a liberation. I mean, when I read Alice Wine's books, a book, I didn't even notice that the O was missing. But for her, it did give her that liberation. And it sounds like it was similar for you using the we throughout. Um, And I'm just thinking back to 2015 when you wrote um, Weightless. It was a really busy time for you, I'm sure. You were a young mother. You were working in the Arts Council. Dealing with arts and writers and artists all day, was it very hard for you in that period of your life to come home and then to have to write, to set up a new structure when you got back? That work-life balance, was it tricky for yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, no, and I haven't really mastered it. You know, I really haven't mastered it yet. So I'm really fascinated in how other writers work and how people manage their time and that. And I mean, it's worth also noting that I wrote Weightless. I wrote the several drafts of it before I actually had my first child and so I think there's a clue in that and um, and then I did redrafts (laughs) when she was small but it was all around taking you know leave from work and I've tried that thing of waking at four in the morning and try to get my words in then and and I don't think I'm that soldier (laughs) you know I think everyone goes through that Sarah so so don't don't be too down on yourself yeah but uh no I mean it's you know, I'm really, really lucky in the job that I have because it's really, really inspiring. And it's really, it is fantastic to be able to spend my days kind of thinking about writing and writers and publishing. And so, you know, if I hadn't been in this job, I I don't think I would have had the, you know, I go to festivals all the time for work and get to hear writers talk about their processes and their books. I read a ton. So I'm in a really enviable position in terms of just that, as I say, like my day job is thinking about these things all the time. Now, sometimes I do find that yeah. a bit oppressive as well, as well because I'm so blown away <laughs> yeah. by how how much talent there is. And it's just, you kind of think, God, is there any original story left to be told or is there an original way to tell it? But I think, yeah, I'm, I, because, because I have so many demands on my time, um, writing really needs to be um, something I want to do and, and enjoy. And, and I have to say, making Waitlist really was. It was. I never thought it would be published. I never thought it would see the light of day. And that was also kind of liberate, liberating because it was just a um, an exercise to see if I could actually finish a book. So now I'm in an exercise of trying to finish a second book, and and I will get to the end of that. But it's going to take okay. it's going to take some time. Yeah, but well, that's great. It's, it is a journey, Sarah. I think every writer would say that. Well, just to say as well, I think you wrote a highly original book in Weightless. And I love one reviewer who said Sarah Bannon traces deceit and hatred, rage and revenge as it encircles the hearts and minds of unchecked youth. Weightless is a book I would recommend to parents and their teenage children. At its core is a subject that demands to be confronted. So I do think, Sarah, you've written a great book there and congratulations. You spoke there about um, working in the arts as well. And uh, I suppose just to finish our chat uh, on this bit before we head into the toaster challenge, I was just wondering, like the arts has been so badly hit by the COVID pandemic. Um, do you think that we are heading in? Will there be some hope for the arts in the future? Um, you know, because so many artists have had such a tricky time at the moment and they're worried, I suppose, and concerned about heading forward. Yeah, I mean, I mean, all I can say is that since March 
Yeah, I mean, I have just been, I, I have been, I've been both blown away by how um, how resilient people have been and, and the, how inventive, I suppose, a lot of the arts organizations have been, you know, the publishers, you know, people like Children's Books Ireland, who, you know, within a month of lockdown had just, you know, had distributed imagination to every household in Ireland. So there have been really, really innovative and exciting things that have happened during that time. I am also conscious that, like, it, I think on the face of it, one might think that this would be a great time for writers, because look at all this time alone and look at all this isolation. But just, I think anyone who knows anything about creativity and how it works is that it's very, very mm-hmm. difficult to be creative and very, very difficult to... To, to, to work artistically when you are anxious about money, about livelihood, about health. So I think it's been a, yeah, it's, it goes without saying that it's been a really, really difficult period. Um, we have a great board and they have been in really close conversation with government from the get-go in securing additional resources. And I think, you know, more than ever, just to be getting money into the hands of artists to allow them the space and freedom to work is is really, really important. I suppose I think we're kind of thinking that next year will be a mm-hmm. prolonged period of commissioning rehearsal and development more than anything and I think if people can kind of get into that mindset yeah we'll absolutely get through it but I mean the fact of the matter is is like lockdown would have been you know would have been so awful if normal people hadn't been on and if um you know and if we hadn't been able to listen to Rita Ann Higgins on the radio and if we hadn't been able to continue to get books from the bookshop so there were you know there were so many parts of lockdown that were actually good and comforting and and most of those things involved art you know and artists so you they you know they can't be taken for granted so no I feel absolutely optimistic because the work is still being made but I but I also wouldn't underestimate how hard it is for people and you know I have the security of uh uh, of my my work but I know myself that like you know and, and no one in my family has been very, has, has been unwell, but it's been just like a super anxious time to be alive, <laughs> you know, and that's, and I don't think that is great for creativity. Yeah, I know. And I think banding yeah. together and supporting each other as much as we can is going to be the way forward as yeah. well. And even Sarah, this wonderful yeah. podcast that is happening as well. I just think if, we, you know, if we can help each other as much as we can, and it certainly sounds, as you said there, that there is huge support coming from the Arts Council and that there is a new team there, which is exciting too. So that's good. Um, so, Sarah, thanks a million for that. I think you are well warmed up now for the Toaster Challenge and we're very excited to hear what is the book that you've brought in that has touched you or moved you in some way. Um, I'm really interested in hearing about it. And Peter is getting the bread ready and he is putting it down into the toaster. One, two, three and go. So my Toaster Challenge is the absolutely brilliant novel Here is the Beehive by Sarah Crossan. So Sarah Crossan is an Irish writer. She is best known to audiences as a YA writer. And she was our fifth laureate in Oak, our fifth children's laureate. And I suppose she's a really original and distinctive writer. And one of the things that people would remark about Sarah or, or would be noteworthy about her work is that she often writes in verse, not all the time, but often. And Here's the Beehive is her first novel for adults. And it's a story of a woman named Anna Kelly. So we kind of get a clue from that from the very beginning. And on the first page, we find out 
that the only way out now is to stay busy. So I have borrowed Anna Karenina from my mother and will not allow myself to cry until I've read it twice. So it's a story of an affair. Anna Kelly, a married woman with children, an affair with a married man with children, Connor. But it's a twist because we find out again very, very early on that Connor has died in a tragic accident. And Rebecca, Rebecca, his wife, and Anna, our narrator, form a kind of an unlikely, self-destructive, perhaps, friendship. And so it's a familiar story, but told in a very unfamiliar way. And I read the book twice. Uh, I read it first uh, in proof form because it's only just out. And it was the first book that I was actually able to complete during lockdown, that I was able to completely absorb myself in because I was so entranced by the plot, the language and the characters. And that's just one thing about Sarah Cross and the reviews have picked her up on it. She writes in verse, but she, plot is like king to her. So like you cannot stop turning the pages and you get through it really, really quickly because, of course, there are very few words. But then I read it a second time and the second time I read it, I was just blown away by the technical achievement of the whole thing. And I do think she is a magician because through so few words, Sarah is able to convey character, plot, image. She has a very distilled way of telling a story. There are so many images that have stayed with me from it. There's a roundabout, there's a scene in the park and they go to a roundabout and it talks about a, uh, a roundabout, not a roundabout, merry-go-round. Anyway, spitting off a child. And I think I'll never watch one of those again without thinking they're spitting off a child. But I think it's kind of like a Russian doll of a novel. So they're layers upon layers, but also like looking at the inside of a clock because it's going right. back and forth through time. And it all sounds very complicated, but actually she just does it so seamlessly. And that's what I mean about her being a magician. So yeah, no, it's fabulous. And the, and the narrator is, is, is not particularly likable and the reviews have kind of picked that up, but I love that about it because she does, you don't warm to her original uh, initially. And uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a great read, but really, really beautiful and, and, and very, very cleverly done. Oh, it sounds absolutely brilliant, Sarah. Thank you so much for that. And just listening to you talking there about the verse novel, a bit like Alice Lyons, no O in her novel. Do you notice that uh, you're saying it's a page turner? Does that help you turning the page or... It does, absolutely. And I suppose one of the things about, like, it's the the rhythm of each line. So, and and you feel like it's actually being read aloud to you as you go along. Now, I will say, I've read Sarah's uh, YA novels as well, which are just superb. I mean, she she really is a fantastic writer. And in those books, the uh, the verse, the, the poems are, are titled and they are actually individual poems. And, you know, there might be a concrete poem there, and, but most of it is in blank verse. Whereas this, the poems are just separated yeah. by like a little uh, graphic in, in, in the novel. And I asked Sarah about this, actually, how she decided to do that. But it was just to keep the reader going along. Now, it is divided into five parts. And, and interestingly, like, you only find out yeah. that, that uh, Anna, the narrator is a mother about a hundred pages into it, which some of the reviews have picked up on um, and have been critical of. But I think that's again, brilliant because it's just challenging your perceptions of, you know, what a woman should be like and what a yeah. mother should be like. And you know, it's, it's really well done. Yeah, I saw that review actually, but I, I like that idea that it's, it's a slowly unraveling yeah. novel. And then the fact that it's balancing these two intertwining marriages. And then is it believable that she, she, then um, kind of is meeting up with, isn't she, the the wife of the man who's dead? Yeah, well, she, see, she's the she's the lawyer. She's she um, she's I think she's developing a I can't remember if it's a will that she's initially meant to be doing for, but that's how she meets Connor. She's she's his lawyer. She's his okay. lawyer, 
And so when Rebecca, the wife, gets on because she has to execute the will, they become kind of friends that way. Oh, no, it feels very, very natural and very, I mean, it seems very self-destructive that she pursues this friendship, but yeah. it is, um, it, yeah. it's really, really fascinating. And the, you know, the other woman becomes the other woman. Yeah. I mean, I saw her talking at the Hay Festival. I saw a little clip of her speaking and she's herself hugely enthusiastic as a writer and a speaker, isn't she? And she was telling this brilliant story that um, when she was an English teacher, you've probably heard the story before that a student said to her, Miss, she was telling them all about how to believe in their dreams and follow their dreams. And he said, but did you always want to be an English teacher? And she thought this was a bit rude. And then she, she, she said, no, no. And he said, well, what did you want to be? And she said, a writer. And so then she began, you know, going back to study and do creative writing. So it really is a dream what's happened to her in a way, isn't it? She followed her dream and she's had so much success with books like One and Toffee and Moonrise, all those books for, for young children as well. They've, they've entered our house as well with our daughter. But this book anyway sounds absolutely brilliant, Sarah. So I'm looking forward to reading Here is the Beehive and thank you for recommending it. Peter, I'm just wondering now, has the toast been toasted okay <laughs> so Sarah that was uh, Sarah Bannon head of literature in the Arts Council and also author talking to us about her wonderful novel Weightless which is published by Bloomsbury and Sarah also came in to talk about Sarah Crossan's book Here is the Beehive which is just out just published Sarah's wildly recommending it and it's also published by Bloomsbury and as usual all details on these books will be available on booksforbreakfast.buzzbrowse.com thanks Sarah So, Peter, what have you got on the table this week? I've got a collection by Lee Harwood. It's called The Orchid Boat, and it was published by Enneth Harmon Press a few years ago. But I just got hold of it recently, and it's the collection that I've enjoyed a lot by a, by a poet I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen I've seen you reading it, and I've he- heard you saying great things about it. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to sh- you sharing some more information with us about, about Lee Harwood. But first of all, to start off, could you give us some background to him? Well, I suppose, I mean, you could think of him as, he's one, certainly one of the leading poets of his generation, although maybe better known in some circles than in others, because, you know, the poetry world can be a bit of a divided place at times. He was born in Leicester in 1939. He died few years ago in, in 2015 and I mean he lived in Brighton I suppose for most of his life but he did spend time in the US and Greece and elsewhere he did lots of different jobs he was a bookseller he worked in a post office he was even a bus conductor at one point of his life but he's published or he published over 20 volumes of poetry fiction and translations including his collected poems 1964 to, to 2004 which Shearsman books um, published and I first came across in one of those old Paladin series of, of poems that came out, oh, it must be back in the 80s now, but this one was called Crossing the Frozen River and it was his selected poems. And it was the first time I really read him at any length. So, I mean, just say a couple of things about him. I mean, America was important for him. Um, the New York School of Poets in particular, he was very close, for example, to John Ashbery. And indeed, one of his best known poems, the one that opens that Paladin selection is The Man with Blue Eyes, which is about a relationship that he had with Ashbery. He's very much associated with the British and American avant-garde, so-called British poetry revival. You know, poets like Bob Cobbing or Tom Raworth or Eric Mottram and Andrew Crozier or the kind of younger generation, John Hall, John James, Ken Edwards, Chris Creek, Tony Lopez and, and Denise Riley, indeed, or the Black Mountain poets in, in the US. I mean, that's his context, if you like. Although actually his work isn't really much like a lot of that 
the thing about it is that it's extraordinarily clear, often extraordinarily direct. It incorporates the personal, you know, you really get the sense of a lived life from his work. Love poems, place poems, The Long Black Veil, which is an early extended love poem, for example. So, you know, in that sense, he writes maybe as much in the tradition of John Clare and Wordsworth as the 20th century avant-garde, you know, so that's so that's sort of sort of a little bit about his his background. So is his work very experimental and is it a difficult work to read? Yeah, experimental is a tricky word. I mean, uh, you know, lots, lots of poetry is uh, experimental and it can mean it can mean lots of different things. I mean, he is in a way, but he's but, you know, he's 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 very approachable, a very kind of welcoming poet, I find. Um, the actual language he uses, for instance, is always very simple. You know, it's a spoken language used by everybody with what August Kleinzeller has called its eerie directness. But of course, he's the first to acknowledge that language is is always pretty problematic. I mean, he, he, he said language is never perfectly reliable, obviously enough, but it's all we have to talk to one another. Uh, and that was in the introduction to his collected poems. So, I mean, the, the poems are always attempts at communication. You know, they move towards their readers rather than away from them. But... You could say, I mean, the arrangement of the of the material, or the you know the disposition of the lines within a poem, for instance, can be pretty intriguing. He doesn't he doesn't fit in all the gaps. That is, I mean, he leaves loads of room for the reader's own imagination. So you know, you have to do a bit of work when you read him, but it's never it's never off putting. I mean, I just want to tell you the truth. He says in one poem, but he's also said, I'm more interested in work that has a delay fuse on it. Uh, that you have to think about and wrestle with and go back and forth with. And that's an idea that appeals a lot to me, the poem with a delay fuse. Mm, I kind of agree with that as well. I think going back to a poem that is challenging always gives rewards, I think. But you have to put your work in, um, as as you were saying there, that he recommended. But but just getting back to the orchid boat, what was the overall appeal for you? Again, I suppose it's that kind of trademark, simplicity, openness. You know, you never know with his work, you never know where a poem is going to go to. I mean, just to take the opening poem of, of that book, Departures, a hot summer night, the sound of rain in the courtyard, a satin breeze sways the curtains. She wrote, Gently I open my silk dress and float alone on the orchid boat. Who can take a letter beyond the clouds? And you're wondering, you know, who is she? What's going on? What's the situation? And then you find that those lines are taken from a poem, Sorrows of Departure, by the Chinese poet Li Ching Chao from the 12th century. And they're, they're kind of two Chinese poems capturing the story of two lovers. And then the 20th century poet reflecting on it and the kind of dim past and the present inhabiting each other. You know, the letter will reach the other side of the mountains. Clouds will roll back clear of the summits. What was needed was done, but never done. It's never done. And then the poem becomes an attempt to imagine this orchid boat, what could it be? And by the end, uh, the poet or whoever is speaking, is, it's all kind of very fluid, is able to step into the boat. Without thinking, I step aboard the orchid boat, the feet of silk carrying me beyond all mirrors. So I kind of like the way, you know, a lot of things are happening sort of simultaneously. I mean, in the book, a lot of different stories and histories get mixed up uh, lines like she climbed down from the trees the next day a queen after many adventures beyond the wood a field sloped down to a wide river its banks edged with reeds you know and then it can move from that to a history of libraries remember the library in alexandria remember its destruction by christian fanatics and the savage murder of the mathematician his hypatia 
Bishop Cyril, may you be tormented forever in your imaginary hell, you and the other dark heart, Archbishop Theophilus, shame on you all. And then suddenly you're you're with his father as a young officer in 1940, having to shoot one of his own men, his stomach ripped open beyond saving, begging to be put out of his agony. And, you know, back again to a childhood memory. So I, I kind of like the way that there is that kind of back and forthness, if you like. There are poems that you have to sit in front of and think about. You know, the spaces around them are important. There are the leaks and the gaps and, you know, the, the, all the indirection of the human mind. You get a sense of, of a human mind at work. And so, but, you know, sometimes they can be totally bare and, and, and unadorned as, as well. And do you have an example, Peter, that you, um, you'd like to share with us? Well, I love this. I love this one. Um, objects on a Polish table. I was going to say, Enda, do you want to read that? Yeah, with no problem. So objects on a Polish table, four books, two newspapers, an ashtray, a pack of cigarettes, matches. Two, when visitors are coming, some poppy seed cake or donuts or fresh baked macaroni placed on a table, a lace tablecloth beneath the coffee cups. Three. A ceramic salt bowl with a lid. Four, an empty vase in the centre of the oilcloth. Come and sit down. So you can't get any kind of simpler or, or more direct or, or less ambiguous than that. There's, all, I mean, there's a poem in it, it's kind of interesting, there's a poem in it called Leia Laforgue, which tells the amazing story of his great granddad, And it turns out that she was actually married to the French poet uh, Jules Laforgue was such a big influence on, you know, Elliot. And she went to Berlin as a young woman, made a living teaching English. One of her students turned out to be the poet who was the French reader to the Empress Augusta. And shortly afterwards, they, they got married and then they moved to Paris. And then sadly, they both got TB and they died within a year of each other. And at the end, he says, you know, I'm not making this up. And I suppose that's kind of, in a way, part of his point. The word is so full of interesting objects, facts or life. You don't really have to make stuff up. But he's also like, he's, he's full of stories. You know, as he says, poems are stories too. The whole history of poetry is all to do with telling stories. Right from being a child, one has this deep need for and pleasure in being told a story. So it's, you know, stories and images. The poems are often very painterly. And again, he's, he, he has said that for him, they're kind of substitute paintings, paintings by proxy. Well, you gave me his selected poems once as a present published by Shearsman Books. And I really liked a poem of his called Coming Out of Winter. So it's called Coming Out of Winter and he dedicated it to Paul. On a bright winter morning, sunlight catching the tops of white buildings, a tree outlined against the sea, a wall of flints, the luxury of being alive when the waves crash on the shore and a fresh wind streams up the narrow streets. A moment like this lightens the darkness a little, lifts the heart until you can walk down the hill near careless. How can that be? Suddenly slammed up against a wall by memories of the dead, loved ones completely gone from this place, shafts of sunlight cutting through the clouds onto the ever-changing sea below. How many times we discuss the sea's colours, all beyond description, words, a mere hint of what's before our eyes, then and now. Great. So that was The Orchid Boat by, by Lee Harwood, published by Enneth Harmon Press. And we also read from uh, Lee Harwood's Selected Poems, which is published by Shearsman Books. And details, as usual, are on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. 
We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.